Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you again to our church, uh, particularly if you're a first-time visitor, second-time visitor, or first time in a long time. It's good to have you here uh, with us at the Vineyard. Let me also say uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the house today. Can we give the fathers a hand? Uh, I know from experience that this is a very difficult job. I have four boys myself. I also know that it can be a thankless job. I saw some memes on Facebook yesterday that said that, the, you know, Facebook is full of pictures of people in restaurants on, you know, Mother's Day, but on Father's Day they expect us to grill something and cook our own meat. Um, <laughs> and so I know it can be thankless. And so here for me this morning that I know your worth. Uh, I know how important your roles are. Uh, it's a God-ordained role, and we honor you today. Uh, we say often around here on days like today that we know that while people are going out, hanging out, posting pictures and selfies of their fathers, other, others of us are, are mourning today because some of us uh, don't have the privilege of having our fathers uh, on this side of heaven. And so this day could be sad, and I know some folks in this room who are dealing with um, the, their first Father's Day without their father. And just know that your church family uh, grieves with you. Uh, we mourn with you today, uh, and we don't want you to get lost in all of the festivities. And I'll also say that for some of you, uh, you did not have a good relationship with your father. Uh, so when, it, when this day rolls around, especially when you see these long and glowing posts about great fathers who were present and who raised you right, and who came to your baseball games, and all your recitals. That's, that's a place of pain for you because that was not your reality. And please know also today that your church family, we have come alongside you this morning. But I want to issue a challenge, as I often do on a day like today. Um, uh, I want to challenge each and every person. If your father is living, uh, find some way to honor him today. Uh, sometimes... 50% of fathering is just being present, and some of your fathers couldn't even get that right. Uh, but one thing they did right is they got you here. And I, 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 I always want to challenge us to find some way to honor and to bless your fathers. If it's not going to be a deep source of pain, if you could find some way to reach out, uh, maybe a text, maybe a direct message, something to bless your father today, regardless of his role in your life, I think that will go a long way uh, toward um, being blessing on a day like today. And so I just want to bless the fathers this, this, uh, this morning. And I just say a quick prayer uh, of a blessing today over the fathers. So, Lord, thank you for, for fathers. I, I am honored that you would uh, entrust me and entrust us with such a precious role and responsibility. Father, I pray that the fathers would feel loved, appreciated, honored, that they wouldn't have to cook their own meat today, <laughs> that they would be treated like royalty today. I pray also for those who are grieving and those who are in pain today. Father, would you comfort the brokenhearted? Would you be near to those who need your touch? And for those who just need every ounce of Holy Ghost within them to say something kind and honoring about their father, uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring strength to be obedient to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, yeah. amen. Hey, before I begin the message, just a few things. We got some new invitation cards on the back table. 
And these invitation cards have pictures on them, and th these pictures are really important. Uh, the last invitation cards we made, we didn't have pictures on them, and one of our members said, hey, could you put the pictures back on there? She said, I'm just, I'm a white person. I live in a mostly African-American community, and when I hand out invitations, people make assumptions about the kind of church that I go to. She said, I've noticed that there's a difference when I show them the pictures of a multi-ethnic, multicultural community. It, it, it is more inviting to different kinds of people. And so that's why we put the pictures back on here. Would you grab a stack of these? Only if you plan to hand them out. And just to be bold and, and, and almost shameless this week about inviting somebody into what God is doing in our church. So these are on the back welcome table. And there are also some on the, the guest kiosk back there. One other thing, Baptism Sunday is coming up uh, on the last Sunday of this month, June 30th, and we get really excited about baptisms here uh, at the South Suburban Vineyard. It is the obvious next step for somebody who's come to faith or somebody who's wishing to go public with their faith. Uh, I understand that some of our kids want to get baptized. If you have not been baptized or if you were forced to be baptized as a youngster and it meant nothing to you, or you recently rededicated your life to Jesus, uh, and you wish to be baptized, the public sign of your commitment to him, you will have the opportunity to do so here uh, in front of your church family as we celebrate you and cheer you on on June 30th. Uh, that's just in a couple of weeks. So if you're interested in that, all you need to do is make sure you're here next week because the next couple of weeks are going to be dedicated to sharing the gospel, talking about the importance of baptism, basically taking the whole church through uh, some lessons and sermons on baptism so that if you're ready to do that in response to next week's message, you'll simply be eligible to be baptized uh, on Sunday. If you can't make it next week and you still like to be baptized, just talk to myself or Shannon or Bobby and we'll get you set up. Baptism Sunday, June 30th, um, 2019. Amen? Amen? Well, let me get into the Word today. I have the privilege of continuing and concluding a series that we've been in for the last three weeks, a, book, a series that we're calling The Book of Jonah. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that we've been camped out in the short book of the Bible uh, named after the prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and prophets were simply people who were anointed and gifted uh, to hear from God and to speak to people on God's behalf. And so some of you are familiar, uh, intimately familiar with this story. Some of you loosely familiar with this. And I have been uh, uh, pretty disciplined about explaining the fact that this is not a story about a guy and a fish, although there's an episode of this story that includes a guy and a fish. But this story is about a man and his God. And this particular sort of avenue of this story that deals with this man and his God illustrates and demonstrates to us how God relates to those of us who have already come to know him, already uh, come to serve him, those who would be called people of faith. The story of Jonah uh, demonstrates well how God relates to those who have accepted life with God. The story is also a story about how God relates to those who are far from him. The people of Nineveh are godless people. They don't care anything about Yahweh. And so this is a really good, comprehensive picture of how God relates to those who are really far from him. It's a, it's a comprehensive picture of the mercy of God, which is the mega theme of the book of Jonah. 
We've said week after week, and I feel like it's appropriate to say it again as we conclude this series, that mercy, the way I see it, is the oil of the kingdom of God. It's what keeps the kingdom rolling to extract mercy. Uh, The kingdom of God comes to a screeching halt. And so I just want to briefly recap this series in case you're engaging it for the first time, especially if you're engaging the story of Jonah for the first time. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, gets a word from God. God says, go and tell this wicked city of Nineveh that I'm going to destroy it. I've seen its wickedness. Go give them a message that I'm going to destroy it. Jonah has an issue with that because he knows God is merciful. He knows God is good. And so Jonah goes in the opposite direction that God tells him to go. He goes away, but God has other plans. He pursues Jonah, chases him down, causes this storm to rock this boat that he's on. Long story short, he's thrown over And the fish comes and swallows him. The fish doesn't kill him, but Jonah sits in the belly of that fish for three days where he has some time alone with God to think about it and to pray. And guess what? He and God square things away in those three days, and fish spits him up on shore. And guess what? Last week we talked about how God came to Jonah a second time and said, Hey, you ready to do what I told you to do? Jonah says, Yes, goes to the wicked city of Nineveh, proclaims God's message, and guess what? The people hear, they respond, they repent, and God reverses his decision to destroy the wicked city of Nineveh, and we pick the story up here. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this story, you might think, great, Jonah went and preached God's message, the people repented, Jonah must be thrilled, he must be happy that over 100,000 people turned to God. Well, if that's what you're thinking, then you're wrong. Because Jonah is less than happy. God has changed his mind, and Jonah has issues. And so what I want to talk about today on week four, the final week of this series through the book of Jonah, I want to talk about our hearts. I want to talk about our hearts. Because life with God can often be talked about, you know, our externals, the actions, the things we do, our busyness with God and our busyness for God and our busyness for uh, God's people. And we can get caught up in the trappings of the things that we can see while ignoring the hidden places, while ignoring what lies beneath the water lines of our souls, friends, our hearts. And I would argue that you and I, most of us, most of the time have a strange heart condition. And I'm not talking about a physical heart condition. I'm talking about a heart condition that is spiritual. It is emotional. And if we don't deal with the matters of our heart, the condition of our hearts, we're always going to have a complicated relationship with God. We're always going to be struggling with obedience. We're always going to be struggling with what we see versus what we heard from God. If we don't deal with our life of faith at a heart level, you're going to have a hard time with God. And so it behooves us to examine our hearts, and in examining our hearts rightly, we lay our hearts bare before the Lord to examine it. And so I've simply called this message this morning, Check your heart. Check your heart. I know that in a room this size, somebody's here today and you're sideways with God. You got issues with him. You're mad at him. You're disgruntled with him. You can't quite understand for the life of you why he won't just do it your way. 
And I come down here to tell you that if you are sideways with God, it's you that needs to straighten up and not him. If you're at odds with God, if you're sideways with him, it is you that needs to straighten up and not God. You can tweet that if you want. And so we're going to deal with matters of the heart this morning. Jonah chapter 4. While you find that in your Bibles, uh, there are Bibles on the edges of the rows, by the way. Uh, you can also follow along on your tablets or on your phones. Uh, to check your heart is the subject today. Jonah chapter 4. While you find that, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. Thank you for the timeliness of this message because I know that somebody under the sound of my voice today that needs to deal with you on a heart level. This isn't about money and offerings. This isn't about singing. This isn't about service. This is like, Lord, getting up on the lift, letting you under the hood of our lives to deal with the hidden places. And so, Father, we surrender to you. As angry as we are, as discontent as we are, as dissatisfied as we are, we submit to your truth this morning. We're sideways with you, Father. It is us that needs to be realigned, and so we give you permission to do your work in this place this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would move the preacher out of the way this morning. Let your truth, your light shine through. Do the heavy lifting in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Check your heart. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. We ended chapter 3 with God changing his mind. We know that Jonah is upset about that. I'll pick it up here, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and, as soon, and, it, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Verse 7, but God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. He's, he's, he's deep in it right now. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there? It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Now, this is an interesting conclusion to what I believe is a fascinating story. And I love how realistic these scriptures are. Hollywood, 
and various publishers seek to wrap stories up with nice endings and nice bows where everybody rides off into the sunset holding hands in a spiritual Christian sense it would be that all these stories could end with people worshiping on their face God's people are happy the wicked have turned to God we're all in our right minds we all have the right disposition and heart Jonah's story does not end this way you read this book and you find yourself turning the page looking for a chapter 5 because this feels unresolved doesn't it but life is often this way I can relate to this because my life doesn't have, you know, neat bows at the ends of the various episodes. Sometimes it's raggedy. Sometimes it's hanging. This is life, particularly life with God. And this story, this particular chapter begins by letting us know that this change of plans, this forgiveness, this turning from God's anger toward forgiveness and mercy and salvation for the wicked city of Nineveh, it greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Jonah is mad at God. He's disgruntled. He's sideways. But in the midst of his disgruntledness, Jonah does something, and maybe, I'm, I'm sure, Jonah's just not thinking, but, but, but maybe this is unconscious, but in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his dis- discontent, he does something remarkable. He prays. Now, I think it's fascinating. If, there, if there's one shining moment in all of this, and this is, pretty, this is pretty dull. This doesn't reflect well on Jonah. None of these uh, chapters do, really. Here's a bright spot. Jonah prays. I wish I could tell you that it was a humble prayer. I wish I could tell you that it was a grateful prayer that flowed from a grateful heart. God, you did it again. You're slow to anger, rich in unfailing love. God, you're so merciful. I love you. I worship you. It, this wasn't a humble prayer, but it was a prayer nonetheless. It was a gritty prayer. It, it was an honest prayer. And though Jonah may not be trying to, as he goes to communicate with God, which is simply what prayer is, he checks in with God. And perhaps what he doesn't expect, maybe he does, is that in checking with God, God's going to check in with him. And going to God to vent and to blow off some steam, God's going to check in with Jonah. He's upset. Didn't I say before I left home, that you would do this? I mean, he's gotten beside himself, hasn't he? But I love this. I'm actually inspired by this because it's so good to know that God can handle our full range of emotions. I'm glad to know that God can handle our full range of emotions. Scripture's full of them. Just read the Psalms. Songs of celebration and praise, thankfulness and gratitude, but they're also songs. They say, God, where are you? How long must I suffer? How long will my enemies make sport of me? The full range of emotions God can handle. In fact, he prefers our honesty, and some of us haven't got a breakthrough because some of you just look too cute with your prayers. 
and your Christian education and your Christian discipleship, unfortunately, has, 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 has not taught you to bring your full range of emotions to God. And so some of us only pray when we're okay. And even if we pray when we're okay, we feel like we can't bring that to God. The full force of our emotional state to God because maybe we can't handle it. Maybe God can't handle it. Maybe that's irreverent. Maybe it's not appropriate. And I am not for speaking to God in the way that Jonah spoke to him. But God's a big boy, and he can handle the full grittiness ugliness of your disappointment and your discontent. Because when you pray, no matter what season of the soul you're in, God has a unique way of examining our hearts. I love the psalmist says, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, you may not always pray this prayer, but when I go to God with my mess, when I go to God with whatever season my soul might be in, this is in essence what I'm saying to him. I check in with him. He's checking in with me. Search me, O God. Psalm 19 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How how will we know if they're pleasing? We bring the meditations of our hearts to him. We bring our unedited words to him. Jonah is doing that. He lacks humility. He's not gracious. He seems a bit irreverent to me. Nonetheless, he darkens God's door with his issues. And in this moment, God is going to do a little checkup, a little examination of his heart. And three things happen, I believe, when you check your heart, particularly when you go before God and lay it bare before him. Three things happen. I want to jog through those this morning. The first thing we do when we check our hearts before the Lord is we let God examine our priorities. We let God examine our priorities. Now, priorities simply are the order in which you place the things that you value. Your priorities are not necessarily your values, but they are more specifically the order in which you place your values. And so if you have five things, right, that you really like, five favorites, Priorities, you know, suggest that one of these things is more important than the other. One is one, two, three, four, five, and such. And I submit to you that many of us don't have a values problem. We have a priority problem. We've got some of the right things in the wrong order. Some of the right people in the wrong order of importance. Some of the right ideas and interests are simply disordered in our lives. And it doesn't matter if you value the right things. If those things are disordered then there will be disorder. And so one of the great things about prayer, honest, earnest prayers, the ones we see here in this text today, is that God, if you let him, will examine priorities. If you want to really discover somebody's priorities, one method is to simply just let them talk. Let them talk. Let them just go on and on, and before long, you'll, you'll, you'll tell what they're into. You can, you can tell what's important to them. 
you let me talk for, for, for long enough, this church is going to come up. This is what I'm into. This is what I'm, you, you let me talk long enough, my wife's going to come up. If you let me talk long enough, my phone's going to come out, and I'm going to show you some pictures of my kids because that's what, that's what I'm into, right? Just let me talk, and my priorities will be revealed. And the same is true with our prayers. If the transcripts of our honest, private prayers were published, it would reveal what our priorities are. It will reveal what's important to us. And I'm not talking about the public, polished, learned prayers. I'm talking about the gritty, honest prayers that you might look over your shoulder before you pray because you don't want anybody to hear them, right? Our prayers reveal our priorities and same is true with Jonah, verse 3. Jonah said, just kill me now. I don't want to live. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Just kill me now. That's a little, that's a bit much, isn't it, Jonah? That's, that's, a, that's a little, that's a, that's a bit, that's an extreme reaction, right? And as extreme as that is, that's not even the most telling part of that verse. The second part of this verse really gets my attention. Jonah says, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. And if, don't, don't move past this too quickly because there is a whole lot in this sentence. Because in this sentence, it reveals his motive. It reveals his thinking. It reveals why he's disgruntled. It reveals why he ran it reveals what's most important to him. Jonah says, I'd rather die than be alive if what I predicted will not happen. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, God, I am a prophet. That's what I do. And my reputation is staked on the accuracy of the words that I give. And all of a sudden, this picture is illuminated, and we see why Jonah had such an issue with going to Nineveh. Sure, he didn't like Nineveh. Sure, he thought they deserved what God was going to dish out with regard to his wrath. But the real issue is on display here. Jonah says, you sent me there to say something that you knew was going to be reversed, and now my prophetic batting average has suffered. And so what it reveals is more than 120,000 people coming to faith. More than God being God alone, sovereign over all of his creation, with the freedom to do whatever he wants. More than that, what's most important to Jonah seems to be his reputation. Seems to be what folks might murmur about him with regard to this particular prophecy he's given not coming to pass. This is what is most important to him. And so inadvertently, as he comes to God with this bold and audacious prayer, God just lets him talk. And as he talks, he reveals the secrets of his heart. And in revealing the secret of his heart, he reveals disordered priorities. It's noble that a prophet would want to be accurate. In fact, in the Old Testament, you could be killed for being a false prophet. Prophecy is your thing. 
wanting to be accurate, wanted to be respected as somebody who hears from God, is a noble, dare I say it, necessary thing. But when your prophetic accuracy and your reputation trumps 120,000 people coming to faith, you've got yourself a problem. You've got yourself a priority issue that God will more than will, is more than willing to straighten out for you if you let him. And some of you are here today, and your priorities are just wacky. They're just crazy. You're upset. You've been in the season of gloominess. And you've been in the season of darkness. And the one thing that you fail to do is say, Lord, search me. I mean, honestly, be honest with you, God, and honest with the people who keep me accountable about what's really bothering me. So that you might speak to this, and so you might show me where I've gone off. And some of you said, listen, I, that's me, Pastor. That's where I live, right? That's, that's me right now. I know that my priorities are disordered. I know that this thing that's upsetting me, this thing that's, that's grown so large in my life, just if I put the kingdom first, if I put first things first, if I were to have this in the proper place in my life, this wouldn't be. But, like, I'm so worked up about this. The emotions of this are just so raw and they're so real and I can't get this into check. Well, God doesn't stop at our priorities as we check our hearts in with him. We move to the second thing. When we check our hearts, we let God examine our emotions. We let God examine our emotions. And this is why we make such a point here to help you to understand that, that hiding and pretending and painting on a smile is just stupid. And you know I don't pull that word out often. And so if I say stupid, like, I mean it. It's stupid. It's fruitless. It takes way more work to be dishonest than it is to be honest. It takes more work to pretend to play a role than it does to be honest. And so this is why when you're mad, and I ask you how you're doing, I want to hear, I'm mad. When I say, how you doing? I, I, I'm sad. I'm, just, I'm depressed. Especially in the church, we've got to get over this stigma of, of, of depression and these, these wide swings of emotions. Like, like, that's like you're in the hospital. Like, we can handle it. We're all dealing with some of the similar issues, Right? But there's so much freedom and deliverance in letting God examine your emotions. Jonah says, I would rather die. The Lord replied in verse 4, is it right for you to be angry about this? And I just hear Jonah like flailing and he's foaming and he's loud and he's angry. And if if I use my mind's eye to, to recreate this scene, I hear God in a soothing voice that doesn't even match the intensity of Jonah's emotion saying, okay, but, but is it right for you to be angry? You ever, you ever been in a heated thing with somebody and they're not returning the heat? It's just annoying, isn't it? You're angry and stuff. That's fine, that's fine but do you think it's appropriate for you to be angry about that? I love how smooth God is 
with his kids. I love how God didn't say, bro, you, you complaining about this again? We've been through this. Here you are again, Jonah, with this childish stuff again, bro. Like, we, we've talked about this. Man up! I love how God is so patient with us. Right? So kind, slow to anger, rich in love. He desperately wants us to get it. More than God wants us to get over it, he wants us to get it. He wants us to reach a place of understanding. A place of stability. Or we have that aha moment where the penny drops for us. He just doesn't want to get past it so he can get on to his next assignment. He wants us to get it. And he takes, he takes time with us. And honestly, I want to be this kind of parent. Too often I'm not. Too often I'm the, hey, hey man, fall in line, bro. We talked about this yesterday. I got boys, too, so I feel a little more licensed to be a little, you know, rougher with them. Get it together. God's not like that. Instead, God's disposition is, okay, 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 let's process this. Let's process this. I heard you, but I have a question, God says. I get that you feel that way, and I want to validate your anger. But I want to ask you this question, my man. Do you think your anger is appropriate? Given all of what we know, given all of who I am, given all of the mercy you've been shown, Joan, I'm not trying to be hard on you or harsh. I just want to figure this out. In light of all of that, sir, do you think it is appropriate to be angry right now? In this moment? With, with this circumstances, these circumstances, do you feel like your anger is appropriate? What an annoying question. Because sometimes you just want to be mad, right? You just want to get it off your chest. You just want somebody to let you be mad and tell you, hey, you are right. I'm mad now because I've heard your story. You're right. You're so righteously angry. Let's be righteously angry together. That's what you want to hear. But God has a different question. And this line of question, questioning is so good for us. It doesn't feel good, but it is so good for us because some of you feel left out. Social, your social arrangements at work, some of you feel looked over. Some of you feel sad. Some of you feel jealous. Some of you feel envious. Some of you feel cultured covetous, you're enraged, some of you feel entitled, and fill in the blank or whatever is bothering you right now, whatever might be the natural response or reaction to some issue you might have with God or issue you might have with somebody else. Listen, those are natural responses to whatever happened. God simply asked, do you feel that is right for you to be that? No, stop, look, let's unpack this. Let's, let's dissect this. And sometimes the answer is yes. Yes, I was actually looked over, and I'm mad. Yes, I was cheated out of that promotion. Our, our credentials don't stack up. Yes, this guy is being paid more than me because I'm a woman. That, is, that enrages me. It's righteous, it's righteous anger, right? But most often the case is 
No. I often find that the emotion, particularly the dramatic emotion that I'm feeling, is not appropriate. It's not a proportionate response to what happened. It usually points to a misunderstanding. It usually uh, points to me not seeing something properly. It usually points to a shallow understanding about who God is or a particular aspect of God's character or a particular aspect of God's plan for me. Most of the time, my, my, my dramatic emotional reaction is totally unfounded. It's totally inappropriate. And though I'm feeling it, It does not mean I have to stay there. It does not mean I let my emotions go wild and unchecked. Yes, they're real. In some sense, they're valid. But it's my my job. It's, 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 It's on me to let God get under the hood of my emotions. And I say this because some of you I've put a low ceiling on your capacity because your emotions just drive the bus of your life. I forget who said it, but somebody said that emotions make great followers but terrible leaders. Our emotions were, are healthy. They're good. They're supposed to inform us and, and, and awaken us to an internal reality, but they are not, friends, designed to drive the bus of our life. And some of us are sideways with God, and as God starts to dissect and unpack our emotions, particularly the extreme ones, especially the reoccurring ones, we realize that it's us that needs to straighten out and not God. And when God comes to us and asks us this pointed question about our emotions, is it appropriate, Jonah, for you to be angry we can respond one of two ways. You can think about it. You can process it. You can lean into it, it. You can be honest. We can let God do his work, or we can do what Jonah did. We can ignore it. He ignored it altogether, which is one of the distinguishing marks of immaturity. Always going around the hard stuff. Always going around the things that will get down to the nitty-gritty root of the issue Jonah ignores it. And we we go into verse 5 where we see Jonah didn't even answer the Lord. He walks off. Verse 5 tells us, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Now verse 5 through about 8 tell us uh, what happened after Jonah was asked this question. Walks off, goes out finds a place to sit down, and he, he's watching the city. Now, this is bizarre to me because is he just watching, just hoping that God will change his mind again and destroy the city? I, what is he watching? He's watching, right? But James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary on, on Jonah 4 that, that, that this is the last thing that Jonah should have been doing. If you're a preacher and your priorities are in order and your emotions are properly aligned, one, His emotional response to 120 people coming to faith would have been absolute exuberation. Right? So a preacher brings a message to a wicked people. All of those people, even the dogs, get saved. If I'm a minister, I'm going to cancel my flight because I've got some preaching to do. I got more. You like that stuff? Well, I got more sermons. 
If the message of God's judgment drew you to him, wait till I tell you about his grace. Wait till I tell you about his forgiveness. Wait till I tell you about his loving kindness, which you've already felt. Wait till I explain to you God's law. Wait till I talk to you about where the boundaries of life are so that you might not sin against God. Wait till I tell you about some of the fantastic psalms that have been written. Wait, wait until you hear all this, right? I've got some work to do. The last thing I should do if 120 people came to faith, including the king, is go up to a hill and pout about it. That's the very last thing I should do. And so this heart check isn't going well, right? Which isn't surprising because he didn't approach it in a humble posture. He didn't come with a posture of learning, but he's still getting an education from God because God is slow to let us go, especially when we've got work to do for him. We've all been created with purpose, willful intention. God's got something for us to do, and we're a pain in God's neck sometimes. But he won't let us go. Verse 6 tells us the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there where Jonah was sitting. Soon spread his broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So this, this imagine supernatural, fast-growing, huge, leafy plant sprung out of the ground, covers Jonah, and provides shade for him. Now, Jonah was disgruntled about the heat. Like, bro, nobody told you to go out and sit in the sun, bro. Like, 120 people just came to faith in the town. They would cook you a meal. They'll give you a room. The whole deal. Like, what's the deal with him? But God shows again his command over nature. Super leafy plant springs up out of the ground. But verse 7 tells us, but God also arranged for a worm The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Here we go again with a death. Death is certainly better than living like this. (laughs) And this is so interesting because... You know, this, this is a picture of us. Don't shake your head at Jonah. Don't laugh at him. I see you. Don't, Tony, don't laugh at Jonah, okay? This is a mirror. We're, we're, we're looking into a mirror. This is us. And these two or three verses just demonstrated how, how, how we are at the mercy of our circumstance. Laughing at 2 o'clock, crying at 2.02, suicidal at 2.04. And this passage demonstrates how emotionally unstable we are when we don't submit our way to God. This passage illustrates how incredibly petty we can be. Combination of our priorities being out of whack, mingled with our emotions going unchecked, we are just at the mercy of whatever happens. We're at the mercy of whomever happens. Our souls are not anchored in the Lord. Our way is not submitted to him. 
We are tossed and driven, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, by the waves and winds of life. Some of you, this is where you live. God has a question for Jonah. It's actually the same question that Jonah ran away from earlier. He comes again, hits him with it again in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Probably in that same calm voice. And this time Jonah answers. He says, yes, even angry enough to die. Super dramatic. And what does this reveal? This brother hasn't learned anything. He hasn't learned anything. And before you throw Jonah away as a terrible human, you should just consider the fact that he's human. Right? Just like you and me. You look at this swing of emotion in the span of probably hours or days or whatever, and if we look at our own week, it's, it's been very similar, right? But God's not done. Because when you check your heart, particularly check it in with God, deals with your priorities. He's more than willing to deal with your emotions and ask you the hard questions. But when you check your heart, you also let God offer you his perspective. And some of you think the answer to your problem is more money. And while you might be having money problems and money might be able to help you out of a situational like deal, you need something more than money. Maybe you're lonely and you feel like if I just had somebody, uh, just had a soulmate, I, you know, I would, everything would be solved. And maybe that would solve some measure of loneliness and make you happier, but that's not what you need most. You go on down the list of all the things that you say, Lord, if you just give me this, I would submit to you, that what I need most, more than anything, is heaven's vantage. I need the unique perspective of heaven to help me make life make sense. And some of us, the thing that we're angry about, some of us, the thing that is causing us to doubt, some of us, the the thing that's causing us to walk away from God would be solved instantly if you could see your situation or your circumstance, or this fallen, broken world from the vantage point of heaven, if you could see what God sees. The angry prayers that you pray, petitions and the fasting and prayers for this thing to happen, and your anger poured out on God and others, if good Lord just You've seen your situation from your vantage. But here's how I see it. You see that person from your vantage point. And all you, all you can see is that they're making your life a living hell. But, 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 but come up here and let me show you. From up here you see that they are bound by hell. And they need the love and mercy of Jesus. All that we would pursue. The perspective of heaven. For God longs for us to see what he sees. And if you could only manage to see your disappointing situation from the vantage point of heaven, it would make so much sense. 
it probably wouldn't hurt less. It probably wouldn't be uh, less unfortunate. But it would make more sense to you. The pain, the yeses, the noes, the open doors, the closed doors. It would make so much sense. The people I judge, if I knew one more fact about them, it would totally change my outlook on them, totally change how I would relate to them. Just one more fact, one more fact about that person you can't stand, that person you avoid, that person you talk negatively about. It. If you knew one more fact that heaven knows about them, it would totally change your perspective. It would humanize them in a way that causes you to see them as image bearers of God. The vantage point of heaven. And it's often the case that we don't get to see the perspective of heaven, but we are challenged and charged to do what? Trust the one who sees. In the absence of an explanation, in the absence of the the vision that God sees, we trust that God's plans are good. We trust that he's up to something that's bigger than what I can see, that he sees around corners. He was there from the very beginning, and he'll be there when it all comes crashing down. We trust God because his ways are higher. The Lord says, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And I could add some more questions to this. Shouldn't you feel sorry? You work for me? My heart should be beating in your chest because you work for me? Should your heart break for that city? Should your feet dance at their salvation? Should you not be planting a church in the middle of the city? Raising up leaders? Should your priorities be rearranged? Your emotions realigned? Final thing that God does here, and we don't see how this turns out, is he offers Jonah the perspective of heaven. I did all this because I care about those folks. I use the method I use, Jonah, because obviously I know everything. And I knew that this message of destruction, when you're concerned about your prophetic accuracy, this method worked. My ways are higher. See, Jonah's anger and disappointment seems so legitimate from his vantage point. It seems so righteous. And God flies him a million feet high so that he can see heaven's vantage, and he looks like a senseless child. A pouting little brat, unable, unwilling to see things God's way. I love how the psalmist in Psalm 73 comes to his senses, and he says, Lord, when you arise, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. I realize, Lord, that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up on the inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless child to you, senseless animal to you. This is after the psalmist went to the sanctuary to worship. 
got out of his own way, got out of his own feelings, was able to see his situation from the perspective of heaven. He said, Lord, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, but now in worship, now in your presence, I can see what I was unable to see. I can see heaven's vantage. And some of you need heaven's vantage today with regard to your marriage, with regard to your kids, with regard to your future, with regard to your singleness, with regard to your marriedness, with regard to your golden years and how you spend retirement, how you grandparent, and how you mother, and how you father, and how you forgive. What we all need is heaven's vantage. And the Lord is more than willing to lay that out for us if we are willing to check our hearts. If we are willing to say, as the psalmist says, search me, O God. Put me up on the rack, O God. Get up under the hood. And whatever you find in there that shouldn't be there, deal with it. Whatever is, is misplaced, whatever is disordered, whatever is wacky, Lord, would you, you just deal with it today? Worship team, you can come up. And so who among us uh, needs God to deal with our priorities? Who among us could use some examination of our emotions? Who among us would greatly benefit from heaven's vantage on our particular situation? Listen, the Spirit of the Lord is here to bring deliverance and freedom and clarity. You can stay in the dark if you want. But I believe the Lord wants to bring us into his light today. And I believe that happens only when we surrender our hearts to him to examine. My prayer for us is that as we worship, um, what we're dealing with would be made clear, that the Lord would also highlight our next steps. Some of that, some of, for some of you, that means responding to prayer. Some of you seeking uh, some counseling, having some hard conversations taking a hard look at your prior, whatever your next step is, whatever that might be, my prayer is that you would respond to the word that's going forth today. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this opportunity, Father, to feast on what you serve today. And Father, may we not be in denial. May we not blame, excuse, or justify. May we submit our way to you. Search us, O Lord. Go to work today, Lord. And may we humbly submit to whatever you want to do in our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.